Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Today we're talking to Hiba Jamil. Hiba is an Iraqi-American artist based in Seattle. Today we are going to talk to her about her journey as a child from a war-torn region of Iraq to becoming a successful painter in the United States. You can find images of Hiba's work on her website at hibajamil.com, H-I-B-A-J-A-M-E-E-L.com, and you can see her work in person at the Gallery Arato in downtown Seattle, Pioneer Square, where some of her work will be showing through April, I believe, leading up to the Seattle Erotic Art Festival, which begins in April as well. Uh, Hibba's paintings can be striking. An article in the Seattle-based publication, The Stranger, from August of 2018, described her work as follows. The kind of painting that stops you in your tracks. On her website, her approach to art is described as follows. Hibba Jamil's art serves as a way for her to process her world. Whether it is to fulfill her civic duty by criticizing the political climate, or to express the sensitive, sensual facets of life through painting flayed, beautiful, nude figures. Or painting to heal from her childhood wounds and engage others in art making via conducting interactive art events. You will see little glass cups decorated with gold in Hibba's work, along with some mushroom clouds, gold leaf, and lots of nude figures. Hibba uses the traditional teacup she grew up drinking from as a symbol of her heritage and as a part of her identity. She processes the world around her by painting her experiences using distinct brushstrokes, rich color palette, and exaggerated figures. Her paintings have a luster finish, gold, and luminescent hues. The human figure to her is a body of language that she can use to interpret experiences and convey messages. Hiba, welcome to the Dream Path Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I'll start off by saying that I, I attended, as you know, your opening last night at the gallery, and I was very impressed with um, not only your work, um, but by the response to your work from the people who showed up. I was there for a couple of hours and and had a chance to talk to the crowd and listen to them and, and kind of get a sense of what their response was. And, you know, I, I, I will never profess to be an expert in art um, or what makes art good or bad, if that's even um, possible to judge art that way. But I've heard that art, that the purpose of art is to create a reaction of some kind um, in the viewer. And I, and I saw that happening last night. I mean, people were affected by your work. So, um, thank you for inviting me to that opening and, uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming. Actually, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you saying that you, uh, you paid attention to the reactions. I was too nervous. <laughs> it was my opening and I, 
I had to make sure I said hi to everybody that came in and, you know, that I knew. And I didn't really get a chance to observe uh, people's reactions as much as you did. Um, and maybe I was avoiding that. Yeah. <laughs> Subconsciously. Yeah. Well, you know, I, it was um, also the setting was just incredible. Um, that gallery, the brick walls and the high ceilings, um, and then, you know, all of the other galleries around it. Um, just a really special event in a in a neat setting. So absolutely, Pioneer Square is is very beautiful. It's one of those little precious areas in Seattle, I would say. Yeah. So before we get into your your background, um, tell us how you got to that point last night where you are showing your art in this wonderful gallery with these um, these admiring uh, people coming in and, and looking at your work and, and, and obviously appreciating your artistry. Um, how did you make that connection with that gallery? So um, it's networking, essentially, but it's not something I necessarily planned for. Um, I think the key is in the fact that I am doing something I truly, truly love something I am truly passionate about, um, something that I jump out of my bed every morning looking forward to it. It's this thing that I do that I, you know, had no problem canceling plans, no problem dropping TV. And I think this passion um, combined with um, some time management and putting myself and my work really out there and bringing my personality to it as well, you know, in terms of being a friendly person and I am an extroverted person. I think that works in my favor, um, being extroverted and being able to talk to people and just easygoing in that sense. I think that helps a lot. Some of my fellow artists tend to be introverted and, um, they just kind of focus on creating the work and they don't really like to engage with others as much. And a lot of times, a lot of artists have that nature. I just don't happen to be that way. And it worked for the best. And how I got connected to Gallery Arado is um, I was involved in um, um, A&T Gallery, Art Not Terminal Gallery in Seattle Center. This is where I started. This is, That was my launching pad. I love that place. I was on the board of directors for about a year, and I'm just taking a little bit of time off right now. But I hope to resume later on this year. Uh, it's a nonprofit gallery for um, emerging artists, and um, it's all volunteer-based. And I was part of that gallery, and I met some fellow artists there who recommended I submit my work to the Seattle Erotic Arts Festival last year. And after I did that, um, Sophia, the director, she uh, fell in love with my paintings and my work got juried into the CIF, the Seattle Erotic Art Festival. And I was invited to go to the reception and to the festival itself. And I was there and I further talked to them and um, they were all wonderful people, you know, the directors of the um, art festival. And um, we we became good friends and then... Um, Later on, they opened a physical location, Gallery Arato, and I was one of the artists that they invited to have their work there almost every month since they opened. I've had my work there. And so in December, I had this idea. I was dropping off a painting to Sophia at Gallery Arato, and I said, uh, 
I have this idea for a show that I'm going to do anyway, whether it's with you guys or with somewhere else. But I'm going to, you know, tell you the idea and see what you think about it. And it's uh, the amorousness of the motherly figure. It's celebrating full-figured females, you know, who look like mothers and uh, kind of celebrating that kind of femininity instead of focusing on, you know, mommy makeovers or looking like you didn't have any kids or no, there's nothing wrong with that. You could do what you want. But in my, in my dialogue, this is what I wanted to talk about in my story, in this particular show, I wanted to highlight and um, talk about the beauty and the eroticism in full figured women who have a motherly figure. And Sophia was like, Oh my God, I love the idea. Yes, let's do it. And then she got back to me two days later. She said, okay, March, well, let's do it for March. And so that's what happened. <laughs> and uh, here I am. Now, did you have all of your paintings ready to go when she said, all right, it's a go. We're going to start you in March. No, <laughs> not even close. I was actually working on a project uh, with an artist from uh, New York. He's an Iraqi American artist. Um, he's also a professor at NYU, and uh, I was heavily involved in that project. And it's a little bit different than what I normally do, but it's also an art project, let's say. And um, I didn't start painting for this show until the first week of February. Oh my goodness! Yes, <laughs> there are quite a few paintings in there. Yeah, I just I tend to work under pressure. Um, and I work better under pressure and, um, I probably should use some slowing down, <laughs> but usually some of my best works come out under pressure. So do you have a studio that you work in or do you work out of your apartment? Um, so I do work at home sometimes and I do have a studio, um, at, uh, it's called Bemis Arts Building in Soto near the stadium. It's a shared space studio. So, um, I share with other artists. But usually I work there. I saw that show. I would say most of the pieces were created in that studio. I was mm. putting about 10 hours a day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed what, you know, I'm not a, a an art aficionado and um, I, I have very little knowledge of the art world, but I did take an art appreciation class in college and I did do some painting um, just as a hobby. And one thing I noticed about your work is the size of the work is, you know, larger than when you look at your website, you just don't appreciate how, um, how big these paintings are. Yes. Yes. Painting is a physical act for me. So, um, I paint standing up. Um, I like that movement. I like that gesture. I like the intensity, um, I mean, I do sometimes sit down and work on a small, very detailed area if I have to. But for the most part, I'm standing up, moving my arms up and down and just getting into that rhythm. Um, and it did cause me some physical pain. I was actually seeing a um, kind of like a kinesiologist for my arm and I had it taped up last month. Um, a painting injury? Yes. Wow. Yes. My right <laughs> arm just gave out. It just could not take it anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So are you, because of the size of the canvas, I mean, some of these are five feet tall by four feet wide. Um, are you using 
large brushes with large brush strokes? Yeah. Most of the brushes I use are large. Um, a lot of them I buy them at Home Depot. <laughs> um, and uh, sometimes I use medium-sized brushes. Sometimes I use a uh, palette knife. Um, sometimes I just take the paint as is and drip it on the painting. <laughs> it depends on what I'm doing at the time. Well, it sounds, it, it sounds almost like industrial, like the tools that you're using to paint. Cause I, my, my vision of, um, like how an artist gets their tools ready for, you know, or a painter gets their tools ready to paint is, you know, they go to the art store and they, they pick out these really expensive, tiny brushes of all different shapes. I mean, it, it sounds like you're going for larger, um, you know, larger tools to I put do that, that paint too, on. Though. I yeah. do that too. So I, I do go to the art store and pick those expensive details, especially for oil painting. Um, it's much more delicate. And then you have to be really careful about the bristles of the brush. And if hairs come out from it, then, you know, how you clean them, you know, oil painting is a ritual by itself. So there's that. Um, so I do do that. And I did that. But I also do the other more physical aspect of painting. Um, like I said, I have to really enjoy what I'm doing. I'm, I'm one of those people who would only do something if they're really, really passionate about it. And then once I do it, I do it hundred percent or 200%. And so, um, for me, you know, when I wanted to do painting, I took, a, um, sorry, oil painting. I took an oil painting workshop with one of the best oil painters in the area. His name is David Gray. And he, he gives workshops here in Seattle and in, um, he goes to Italy and to France to give portrait oil painting workshops. And he kind of got me started on the oil painting. And that actually happened in January. So I'm very new to oil painting. I know, I know it's a shock. <laughs> I know, but I've been painting in acrylic my whole life. Um, so it was just a matter of changing the medium, not as much as the technique or how you paint a face or how you, I, I know the shadows, the values, I know all that stuff. So it was just, you know, how do you use this new medium? And I fell in love with it. It was amazing. With oil painting, um, there are different ways to paint, obviously, you know, you could do hyper-realistic, you could do a little bit uh, more modern, abstract, you know, you could just play with it. And um, it, you do need to get the nicer, more fine you know, they have to get really nice quality paint, uh, nice brushes, and there is a method to do it, to go about it. Um, where with acrylic and with what I was doing previously, there are no rules, pretty much. And that's the joy of it, is really, you could just do what you want. And I think part of my success as you had I don't think, <laughs> I don't look at myself as, oh, I'm successful now. I'm more like, oh, I'm kind of where I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. But not necessarily, um, I'm not necessarily aiming to be successful. I'm really immersed in enjoying the process. So it's not even, I'm not even thinking about it. To you're be not honest thinking about you. where you're going. It's just, it's uh, the journey. I am, there. but not in the sense that, oh, I I want to be this shining star. It's not really like that as much as what am I going to contribute? What's my contribution? What am I going to give people? How good of a job am I going to be doing? Am I improving? Am I moving forward? 
um, in my skills. And um, that is a priority. And that's what I think about all the time versus am I going to be successful or not? Right. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I attribute part of whatever you consider as success to my love for freedom. And because I was painting without any rules per se, and I was just kind of doing my own thing, I think that helped me flourish because it allowed me that space to be creative, experiment, and bring out some brush strokes and techniques that I probably wouldn't have done if I had, you know, if I had been taught by a certain someone or went to art school. Right. Yeah. That so makes you, a lot of sense to me that you would, you know, if you discover painting on your own without the constraints of a curriculum, mm -hmm. you know, and th this is what impressionism is. This is what expressionism is. This is what, you know, figurative painting is. Um, and you are discovering that on your own without these labels and rules um, that you would, I would think that you're, you're more likely to find your way to something that's truly authentic mm -hmm. to you. Um, do, you, do you feel like that that's what happened for that's you? That's precisely what happened. That's exactly what happened. And um, that is one of the reasons why I probably never took the plunge to go to art school. I really wanted to do my own thing. I always said that art is the thing I love the most in this world, and I don't want anyone to tell me how to do it. I really want to do it the way I want to do it, the way I feel it. So, and a lot of people don't like to hear that. <laughs> and a lot of art, you know, um, professionals or people who went to school and studied that don't like to hear that as well. Um, and to each their own. There is obviously there is a huge value in getting education in art. I am not against that per se. But me personally, you know, to what it pertains to my own journey. And how I was brought up and my upbringing and my background, I don't think I need it. Well, you um, you said that you don't want somebody telling you how to how to do your art. How do you respond or do you even respond or listen to um, art critics? If I ask someone about their opinion, then I am receptive of what they have to tell me. And I'm ready to hear it. But I uh, typically don't pay that much attention when people just kind of comment and tell me, oh, you should have done this. You should have not done that. Or you should have taken this off. I'm like, okay, whatever. But I don't really. But if I, you know, I, for example, um, I think it was back in December or I, I don't recall. It was a few months ago. Um, I'm in, I'm a member at COCA Center on Contemporary Arts in Pioneer Square, another gallery. And, uh, they have these, uh, jury panels twice a year where they look at your portfolio. You, you basically go to get feedback on your work. And so I go to these things. I put myself out there. I put my work out there and I ask these people who are whom I value their opinion. Tell me how I can improve. What do you see that, you know, how do you, how do you perceive my work and which improvements can I do, et cetera. And I did that about three times last year, but it's usually targeted. It's usually, you know, um, one of the first one I went to was with um, a gallery in Kirkland. I can't recall the name. 
um, yeah, they had a jury panel and I went for portfolio review and I stood there and I talked about my work and I had my work physically there with me. And it was a panel of about five individuals who are all gallerists, art critic, collectors, and they gave me wonderful feedback. And the ones that I was sensitive about, I just went home and thought about them. And I actually took them constructively over time. Um, and I didn't really pay that much attention to the positive praise <laughs> because I'm like, I, I just want to know how I can improve. So you're a um, true suffering artist. <laughs> I think you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> you no, could say don't that. listen yeah. to the praise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, the, you know, I, I really don't study art criticism or read it. So is there a lot of art criticism out there that, um, that actually you end up seeing whether uh, purposefully or accidentally about your own work? I feel there are some self-prophesized people who, who call themselves an art critic. Yes. Yeah. But there are also some true art critics that um, I just recently had a writer slash art critic from Baghdad who uh, saw my work and, uh, Keep in mind, you know, being an Iraqi woman who paints full-on nude figures is a huge, <laughs> is a huge thing in the Middle East. So I've got like, you know, emails and messages over social media. Why do you do this? Why are you, you know, painting nude women? Like this is a huge thing for them. And being a female artist who paints nude women is also like, it's just like, what's in your brain? How are you thinking? Um, it's very hypersexualized. I don't necessarily paint about the sexuality of the figures. I just paint the figures and their beauty. And it's not necessarily about sexuality, you know, and uh, they don't understand that. But, um, you know, that being said, there are a lot of educated people who appreciate art, who value it and value the rebel act, the rebellious act that I'm doing. And one of them is this writer um, who reached out to me and he was like, he gave me, um, he gave me some feedback, uh, on my work, but it was very constructive, short, concise, down to the point. Um, and I think the feedback he gave, he, he gave it on a painting that wasn't finished yet. And then when it was finished, he was like, oh, okay, I see where you're going with this. But initially he thought it was finished, but then he wrote this long article in Arabic, of course, about how I am painting the figure, but not the hypersexualized. It's basically exactly what I just described. And I was surprised how he just got it yeah. like this. He just got it. And it was a beautiful article in Arabic that I had to get someone's help. To, you know, Arabic is a very delicate language and, you know, it's fancy. And so I'm like, what, are, what do these words mean? <laughs> This is, sounds interesting. And I, I wish I could get it translated somehow. Um, but he he praised my work pretty much. And he talked about um, that, you know, that I'm daring. And that as a female Iraqi artist, they paint all these nude women and nude figures and challenging the, the viewer's point of view and the viewer's perception of art. And um, so there was that kind of positive criticism. I get sometimes from 
more um, experienced artist friends that I've known over the years. They tell me some little things here and there. But usually they're very sensitive about how they say it, which is beautiful because we all understand each other and we all know that when you create a piece of art, this is your baby. So you have to be careful about how you address address it. Um, luckily, I haven't had... I Well, let me back up a little bit. The Trump painting I did last year, <laughs> that one. The one that's, a, I really don't care yes, to you. Yeah, yes, okay. that one got a lot of heat. And I don't know if that's criticism or that's emotional reactions, but I was just getting, well, you know, um, one person wrote, isn't it nice that you could create this kind of work and now pack up your bags and leave if you don't like this country? Huh? Um, yeah, it was, yeah. it was amazing. That kind of stuff. And some people they are like, no, you have it all misunderstood. You don't know what you're talking about, or you're taking advantage of the situation to bring up your name. And it was just, it was a lot of heat. Um, but there was equal or more amount of positive feedback and people relating to the art and having it actually move them so much. So. Well, it's very evocative provocative it piece <laughs> and, and if you're interested yeah. the listeners who are interested in seeing it you can go to her website and check it out it's, yeah, it's, it's really currently at uh, cool. it's currently at west of lennon gallery in fremont oh nice uh there's a theater west of lennon theater they also have a gallery and it's showing there until the end of march um so pe people can reach out and see when they're open to go check it out themselves but um yeah i mean that piece was created out of pure passion um i had a reaction to the events that led me to paint that piece and i was actually painting it in tears <laughs> and it was very very hard for me to paint it it was not easy to paint i mean i have a four-year-old and i was just spiraling because i'm an immigrant my, I, I was an immigrant myself i had to travel and go through that and i can't imagine what it would be like for me to go through what these people were going through. Well, that little, the little child that's in the, the center of the, the painting it is, it's heartbreaking. It's very heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think you really captured a lot of emotion with that painting. And, uh, and obviously, um, triggered some <laughs> Trump supporters too <laughs> at the same time, which is great. Um, now before we get into your, your background in, in Iraq, um, and your journey here, uh, I, before I forget, did you consider your work to be erotic, uh, artwork before the erotic art festival, um, kind of took you under their wing with this, this gallery and, and, um, the show that you got into, is that a category that you even thought about when no, you were painting? No, I was just really painting what I wanted to paint. Right. Didn't really think of a certain category but it was just more like there's an audience there's a certain audience that would particularly appreciate these paintings right and so i submitted my work to them but it wasn't necessarily that i wanted to become an erotic artist or um or you know painting erotic figures that wasn't necessarily what i wanted to do it's just what i i saw something i wanted to paint it i did it and that was it yeah yeah so you were born in Iraq? Yes, I was born and, in Baghdad. And what year? 83. Okay. And um, how long did you live in Iraq before coming to the United States? Uh, we lived there until 94. I was 11. And that's when we left. 
pretty much escaped Iraq. So that was during the Gulf War? Or? A- after the Gulf War. After. Yeah, yeah. And do you, what do you remember about the Gulf War? Were you old enough to really have vivid memories? Oh, yes. I, uh, it's funny you say that because I had, uh, I was asked to paint about my experience in the Gulf War last year. And I had a joint show at A&T with another fellow artist. Um, it was also in March of last year. And um, I painted about my experience in that war. I remember it very clearly. I remember the first night. I remember how it ended. I remember what happened every single night. It's embedded in my memory. And uh, painting about it was very therapeutic. Because I went on my whole life thinking I'm okay. But I'm really not. I have PTSD <laughs> from the, you know, like n- loud noises. And it's it's not as severe as someone who was participating in a war, like a veteran or something. But it is a mild form, I guess, of PTSD. So you 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 still feel the um, the emotion of fear and um, trauma from those experiences in Iraq to this day. And you, you think it's uh, probably uh, some, some form of PTSD that you have. No, I was diagnosed. Oh, you were actually diagnosed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. um, It's, it's terrifying. I was probably eight at the time or seven. And I remember I didn't know what was going to happen. I woke up in the middle of the night. We lived with my grandparents at the time. My parents were separated and actually, my dad was probably in the war as well, now that I remember. He was also part of the, like, you know, you don't have an option over there. If if they go to war, everybody goes to war. Like, all the men have to get recruited to the military to go to the war. So I think my dad was also a soldier. And uh, we were at my grandparents' house, and we woke up in the middle of the night. And I remember just hearing very loud, loud noises and all my uncles and aunts and everybody's running in all directions across the house. And um, everyone was saying, you need to stay in the corners, stay in the corners. Because if they bomb the house, the corners don't fall. And uh, that's what we did. We found a corner. My grandmother held me and my little sister and we sat in the corner and my mom and her were kind of alternating and taken turns and uh, we would sit and I remember the corner that I sat at I was across from a very large window and uh, I I saw every night that window was propped the the blinds were propped open there was no electricity because they bombed the electricity unit or whatever so it's took out the power grid exactly yeah and so um I remember looking at that window and just seeing all the bombs go down and looking at the little lights as they go down and then waiting to hear and feel the effect of it. And uh, that would go on every night, like from sunset until, I don't know, the morning or something. And there was no war during the day. They they didn't bomb us. I don't know why. There There is a reason. I know there is a reason for it, but... Um, it was sleep deprivation and fear and everything all at once. And uh, I, when I used to get scared, my family would say, oh, it's, you know, think of the Atari games that you play. I don't know if you remember Atari. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They're like, this looks like the Atari games. Think about, think about the Atari games. 
And so when I was asked to paint, that's the first thing that came to my head. Oh, what's the Atari war? And so I called the exhibit uh, Atari Paints. I was wondering about that because I looked yes. at your website and I see the, yeah, the Atari. Now, Atari Paints, mm -hmm. it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you say when you were asked to paint, um, was there a, a moment in your life where someone asked you to paint something? Well, um, he, this particular artist is an American ex-veteran who paints about the American soldiers who died in the Iraqi war. And he paints them as uh, black crows. So each painting would have a certain number of black crows. And those are the soldiers that died in the war. And so for each year, he would have a painting that has a certain number of birds. And he wanted to have an exhibit. And he asked me, because he's painting about kind of his reaction or his view as an American to the Iraqi-American conflict. And he wanted me to paint about my view as an Iraqi um, person to the American-Iraqi conflict. And so I did. I painted about my experience. Not necessarily about what I think is right or wrong. Not necessarily about who's at fault. None of that. I just painted about what I experienced as an individual going through that hardship. When was that? The show? Yeah. Like when, when did you start painting about that experience? Uh, February of last year. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So, so you're, when you're 11 in Iraq yeah. and with your grandparents and your parents are separated, um, at that time, were you into art in any you yes. know, meaningful I way? I was painting since I was three, I would say my, um, my mom was uh, a hobbyist, art hobbyist at the time. My uncles, aunts, everybody in that household somehow knew how to draw or paint. And it was just so easy to them. None of them went to school for it. They're just, I don't know, I guess it's genetic. And so I was surrounded by all these people who just, um, it was easy for them to sit and do a, a face portrait of each other. And so I I think I also had it in me and I picked it up and I continued to enjoy, you know, and my mother was a huge part of that, obviously. Um, she went on later and got her degree in fine art here in the U.S. But at the time, um, she would buy me all kinds of markers and watercolors and, you know, paint and would encourage me and direct me on how to draw, how to paint and kind of like, okay, Let's try doing things from still life. Let's do things from pictures. She started in the beginning to encourage me to replicate the uh, drawings in the coloring books. And then I graduated to painting from uh, maybe my books, like the little, you know, storybooks. And then, you know, try to draw from pictures and then try to do still life. And she'd give me feedback. And for me, it was the thing that I went to her to get her approval and to feel happy. Oh, this is great. This looks good. Okay, let's do this. Let's try this. And so that was my thing when I was a child. So you did go to art school. Yeah, I guess I was <laughs> homeschooled. You homeschooled, yeah. <laughs> homeschooled art school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so you were painting in, in Iraq since the age of three. And how did you make your way to the United States? 
Um, I was, I wouldn't say I was painting. I was more drawing and coloring and just kind of playing with all these. It was really drawing. Those, those years were honing my drawing skills, figures, faces, anything. I started to paint in high school here. That's what I was introduced to painting. Um, in high school, I took an art class and, uh, I got introduced to acrylic and that, that was back in the year of 99, I would say. And that's when I started to actually paint, like half paint and paint brushes and canvas. That's when I started. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you were 11, is that when you left Iraq? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We had to escape actually. Um, we had problems with the previous regime. Um, my uncles at the time, one of them was working for the government and then he decided he doesn't want to work there anymore. and they don't really take that very well. You can't start working with the government and then not work. And he was young and naive. And I think he just wanted the prestige of getting that job, um, not realizing the consequences that could have on anyone. And I think there's other factors, if I, if I recall. But anyways, he wanted to stop working and then he started to run away and they would catch him, throw him in jail as a punishment. And then the last thing was um, uh, they wanted to cut his ear off. Yeah, that was a thing. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, that was a thing. Uh, cut, yeah, that, that's. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but it's that, it's just that's like Saddam gallows that, humor. That's I guess what he did at the time, and um, and the judge ruled that that's what they're going to do to him. So he ran away, and we smuggled him out of Iraq. So that was a sentence in a, yes, by a court, exactly. Oh my goodness, precisely. <laughs> and so um, he left. He left Iraq, and they kept on coming and looking for him so we would be at night and we'd have like midnight and we'd have 10 you know men dressed like you know military weapons and everything coming from the top of the house kind of like a sudden search i don't know what ambush search something like that looking for him and they wanted to take my grandfather at the time i remember my grandfather was paralyzed since the gulf war he yeah, it's a very, it's a very interesting, complicated story. Um, that same uncle during the Gulf War, um, he was he was working for the uh, national security, and he disappeared completely. So every time they go ask for him, they say, "Where is he?" They're like, "He's the son of the government, not your son." So for six months, he was just not there. So my grandparents thought that he died, and so my grandfather got depressed. He got three strokes back to back. He got paralyzed. This all happened around the Gulf War. I mean, that war had a lot of effects on my family it's in so many ways, financial, you know, um, social, I guess, everything. And so... Um, well, your world is, is literally crumbling exactly, around you. Exactly. Yeah. And so... Um, so fast forward to the to the day when these people came and looking, searching for my uncle. They wanted to take my grandfather until we bring my uncle back. And they begged them. They said, you know, he's sick. He can't even talk because he lost his speech and he's paralyzed. You know, we can't take him. Just give us a few days. So they said, okay. They left. And we left the second day to Jordan. That's when we kind of escaped. We made fake passports, all of us, because none of us can travel. Because there's a sentence, if, if one person in the family works in the government, the rest of the family is involved. That's just how it is. You're in. 
Exactly. Yeah. So we had to fake, you know, fake passports and names. And then we uh, smuggled kind of ourselves. Well, not really. Just kind of like traveled to Jordan. And we didn't tell anybody. Nobody knew. None of our relatives knew. And we vanished. And we never went back. That was in 94. And Jordan was a friendly country at the time and that you were safe in, at least? Um, Yeah. From that sense, yeah, it was it was pretty safe. We stayed in Jordan for about three to four months, and then after that, we went to Syria. And uh, we stayed in Syria for about three years, and then um, we were refugees with the United Nations. Um, my mom was working as a reporter in opposition um, to Saddam's regime, opposition newspapers and magazines. Uh, she was a reporter in those. Um, and then in Syria, in she Syria, was? in Syria. So they are newspapers run by Iraqi opposition parties to Saddam's regime. At the time, Syria and Iraq didn't have good ties. That was back in early nineties, I would say. And uh, we were considered women at risk by the United Nations. And um, my mom really wanted to bring us to the U.S. She wouldn't accept going anywhere else. No Europe, no Canada, no Australia, no nothing. She said, the U.S., that's where we're going. And we waited until the committee from the U.S. was there. And then we finally came here in the year of 98. Wow. Yeah. What a journey. Yeah. So do you remember the three years that you were in Syria? Um, you know, my vision of Syria now is just an awful, you know, war-torn region with, you know, ISIS and Assad and gas attacks. And was it was it a fairly safe environment for your Not family back then? Not even remote to what you're describing. It yeah. was a bliss. It was peaceful. It was butterflies and flowers. It was beautiful. I had, I would say, probably better time than I had in Iraq. Um, I mean, in Iraq, when I was very little, I remember, but then I think it was second grade is when we had the war and things went really downhill. So I didn't really get to enjoy Iraq that much, but I enjoyed Syria. It was so much fun. Oh my gosh. It was, we loved it. We were always going out, going on little trips, even though the situation was difficult. You know, my mom had to work three jobs and we were uncertain of what's going to happen to us and we were unstable and we're waiting for this committee, waiting to hear from the United Nations. Where are we going to end up? We don't know. But we were able to fully enjoy Syria. It was beautiful. It was literally flowers and butterflies. That's what I remember. Did, were you bummed to leave and, and have to go somewhere else? No. No? No. I was looking forward to coming to the U.S. Um, I was really fed up with the patriarchal society that we have in Middle East. I was fed up. So if you were, so you were 11 when you went to Syria yeah. and you were 14 when you left. Yeah. Right. So between 11 and 14, it sounds like you had, you developed this awareness yes. of the patriarchal, yes. you know, yes. that And happens, I just could you know? not wait to get to the other side of the world where this does not exist. Where there's freedom. Exactly. Gender, freedom, freedom exactly. and equality. Exactly. And, yeah. Where no catcalling, no, um, you know, uh, objectifying of the female and um, minimizing what women are or, you know. And in, not to say that everybody is like that, but that's the general. And I think it's not just the Middle East. I think it's in other parts of the world as well. Well, it's in the United States too. Yeah, I but mean, to a yeah. much less extent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And people are much aware and vocal about it. And 
Um, At least there's a dialogue going on in the United States about it where, oh, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We've come a long way at least. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Recently, we've, it's been well, kind of wishy-washy. Two steps back. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, like you said, we can do something about it here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have this awareness and, and you have this idea of what America offered in terms of freedom and equality. And then when you... Where did you land, by the way? Where where did you end up in America? So, um, the the United Nations brought us, took us to Michigan. The I don't know why they picked that state, but we went to Michigan, and uh, there is a huge Arab population there. But funny enough, when they took us there, we didn't actually end up living in that area. We lived somewhere half half hour away from it, so um, we didn't really get to. I mean. Uh, later we learned of it. We learned that there's this city called Durban that has all these Arabs and et cetera. And did, did it, I guess, uh, match up with your expectations of what America was going to be? Michigan? Uh, there was a culture shock and there was a learning curve. And keep in mind, none of us spoke a word of English. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And your parents were still separated at this yeah, point, right? Yeah. My yeah. dad at the time, I think he was still in Iraq. So it was my mom, my grandparents, and my sister and I. And um, None of you spoke English. None of us spoke anything. And uh, we had to learn it from scratch here. Um, I think people outside the U.S. sometimes have the impression of the U.S. either looking like California or New York. <laughs> but then there's that in-between that nobody talks about, right? right? So <laughs> when we came and we went to Michigan, we we're like, what is going on? Why does it look like this? Like, because it was the suburbs, yeah. and we didn't. Yeah, we just didn't. We weren't exposed to it. So the, the expectations, it, it's difficult. No matter how you do it, how you put it, as an immigrant, the first few years in the U.S., you're starting from below zero, not even at zero. You're starting from below zero. Your, you know, your furniture is from Goodwill. It's donated. You're getting government assistance. You're, you know, you have a job. You're trying to learn the language. I remember I was in high school and I didn't speak any English. So I would open the dictionary and try to translate everything. Um, and, you know, I was lucky to have some good tutors that were bilingual and who helped me a little bit. Um, but it was just really hard. I would say the first seven years were really difficult. And then it got better and better and better after that. So when you got to high school, uh, well, right when you got to Michigan, you were 14. So you're like a freshman. 15. I was 15. 15. Yeah. Freshman in high school. I was 10th grade. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did they have, I mean, did they offer tutors in high school for you that would help you get through those English language classes? Yes, and, they did. They had yeah. an ESL class. They had someone who would, you know, they, they had things in place for that. So it was, it was really helpful. They were very nice. And that's where you started painting yes. on canvas. Acrylic I paints. remember the art teacher loved me. She commissioned me to paint on a door that w I think it's still there until now in the high, in high school. It was uh, it was called Berkeley High School in Michigan, and uh, my friend and I. And what town in Michigan? Berkeley. Oh, in Berkeley, Michigan. Yeah, in Berkeley High School. Okay, yeah. I get it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, we painted a door, and you know we we were she introduced to cubism, and it was just it was just an, a fun class. Yeah. And from high school, mm -hmm. uh, where'd you go next? So after, so yeah, I mean, we moved a little bit in Michigan. 
Um, we moved to a different city, and then I moved to a different high school. Um, after that, I uh, started at Henry Ford Community College, and I didn't know what my major would be. Um, when I was in middle school, I told my mo- my mother, my late mother, um, I told her that I wanted to be to, come, to become an artist, and she said no. <laughs> Even though she taught you how to be an artist, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, she was afraid. She wanted to make sure that I have like a stable income. We had a rough background. We had a rough life. She wanted to. She wanted to make sure I have a secure future. So I get it. I get where she came from, and I also can't deny the fact that I did have a genuine interest and a part of me who wanted to do things and learn things other than art. And so I started as a computer science major. Then I took this biology class and I got really curious about how everything happens in the body. And I wanted to know down to the T how energy gets transferred between cells and how when we eat food, does it get broken down and becomes energy in the body and how we process it on a cellular level. I wanted to zoom in all the way microscopically and understand things. And then I was recommended to um, study biochemistry to learn those things because I kept on asking questions. And I ended up tutoring that class, biology. And um, I studied biochemistry and cell biology. And then I moved from Michigan. I finished my degree at UCSD, University of California, San Diego. Um, and that's what I studied, biochemistry and cell biology. And then I did my master's in nutrition science and policy at Tufts University in Boston. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Ambitious. Yeah. yeah, it was more fueled by genuine interest, really, in the subject matter. Um, I really wanted to know how these things worked. Um, and then when I graduated my master's, while I was going through my master's, a lot of life-altering things happened. I had my first child. My mom had cancer and then passed away from cancer. Um, and I was kind of going through the motions with her. and then. Uh, After she passed away, I focused on finishing up my degree. I graduated. And after I graduated, I said, I'm going to paint. (laughs) You got your your bachelor's in bio. Master's, yeah. And then your master's in nutritional science. Nutrition science and policy. Makes total sense. (laughs) Yeah. And then I said, I'm going to paint. And so that's what I did. Wow. Yeah. So what year did you graduate with the master's degree? 2017. Okay. Yeah. And so you make this decision to to paint. And it, what what is the plan, though? I mean, I, I understand, you know, the, the desire, the goal. You know, this is what I want to do. I want to paint. But what was the plan to actually make that happen and be able to care for your child or do you have more than one child? No, just one. So care for your child and, and survive. So, so I, I was married at the time and my husband had a good job. And, uh, so, you know, it wasn't, we weren't pressed financially per se, but, um, I didn't even have a plan. The way it started is that I was, I came across an ad in the year of 2016 uh, it was called Art Rising by um, Lake, is it, uh, Lake Union Chamber of Commerce. They were opening Denny Park and they were looking for artists who would do an interactive art in the park during the opening ceremony. And so I applied for that 
And I created a project um, and I was a little bit triggered by the elections and all the propaganda that was going on. And uh, after I saw people's response to my interactive art event, that gave me that kind of, it was that little, you know, whisper from the universe kind of, it was just that, look, look, at the, look, look, look here, look, this, look what's happening. People were in delight. They loved the project. They loved being part of the art. And I was surprised by their reaction. I had no idea people were so perceptive and, you know, they were, they loved art. And that really encouraged me to rethink my art and rethink this little hobby that I do on the side to decorate my home. M maybe it will be something bigger. And so after I did that, what I did is at the time, I called it insan. Insan in Arabic means human. I had a very large painting. It was six feet um, in width, I would say length, width. Yeah, length. And it was four feet in width. And I had a light source. And so what I did is I would ask people to pose in front of the light source. And then I would trace their shadow on the canvas. And so I had all these silhouettes on top of each other of all these different kinds of people. And then all the differences in sizes and genders and whatever, all, all the lines merged together and created this really beautiful imagery. And the point of that was that we're all connected no matter how different we are. We're all, we're all human. We all want the same things. We're all ants chasing the same thing. And so when I was recruiting people in the park, when people would come by, oh, what are you doing? I'm doing this art project. Would you like to be a part of it? And when I explained it to them, they're like, yeah, we love this. Let's do it. And so that was that was really nice. It was, it was a beautiful, it had like a beautiful feedback. It was just amazing. And so after that, um, I had in the previous few years uh, shown at Ant Art Not Terminal Gallery um, but then I learned about their relocation to Seattle Center. It's in Seattle Center, right by the International Fountain. So I pitched an idea. I sent a message to their um, social media and I said, hey, I did this interactive art event with uh, South Lake Union Chamber of Commerce. And I think your gallery location would be great for it if I do it there. Are you guys open to it? They invited me to the board. I pitched the idea to the board and then eventually I got on the board of directors and I was heavily involved in that gallery and then from there it was more like okay I'll look for a job and I'll do this but then the art kept on getting better responses than my job search <laughs> and I sold uh, a piece and the month after the first time I showed with them um, was the year of 2017 um I think it was October, I sold that piece. And then November, I sold another piece. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, something is happening here. You know, granted, they weren't like, it was the, I think the first one was like $300. The second one was like $400. It wasn't like something, but it was just encouraging to see it through. And it was encouraging to see people's reactions to my work. And so I continued to create more art and look for a job. And then the art kept on happening more than the job. <laughs> and I just That's just kept awesome. on flowing and then I was applying to shows and I was getting in and I was getting feedback and then I launched my website and I got even more feedback and I saw people's reactions and then I sold more work um, and my prices kept on you know climbing up <laughs> 
And um, I, I would say it was, it's a beautiful upward, slow upward slope that was happening um, in terms of how much work I was putting in, people's reactions, how much work I was selling and the other galleries that wanted my, to show my work. And, and then I had them, I had that person ask me to do the show with him in March and I did that and people's response was amazing. And then right after that, I um, had a contract with a gallerist in Italy and I took three of the three paintings from the Atari paint series to Italy to show at art fairs. They're still there. And uh, yeah, it just kept on getting. And then I uh, got sponsored by the Office of Arts and Culture to do um so aside from painting i also do interactive art events uh about using art as a form of therapy and uh the first one was sponsored by art with heart it's a nonprofit organization that uses art for healing for children who come from homes that have a lot of trauma um so it was called shades of emotions that was in december of 2017 I believe and then after that I got sponsored by the Office of Arts and Culture to do another interactive art event which I will repeat again this year I did that last May it was called Psychosomatic um, and it's about painting um, your pain let's say someone has an anxiety attack um, and then they start to get a headache so they would paint that headache on a figure that I had already started for them. So you saw all these figures that I had started and then you see people's contributions on top of them. Yeah, what does that headache look like? Exactly, yeah. Or someone else said, you know, when I get stressed out, my left arm starts to hurt. So they go paint on the left arm of one of the figures of their choices. And so it went on like this. And uh, and then after that, I was invited by the Office of, Art and, of Arts and Culture to speak um, on Seattle TV to the city councilman about the project. Um, and that was really interesting. I had to give a presentation about that. And again, this year, I believe that will happen again. Well, so, you Let's know, see. my, I guess the uh, stereotype that is in my mind of, you know, what an artist is uh, or a painter is that they, um, and by the way, that the planes that you're hearing in the background, we're, we're actually on Lake Union in Seattle yeah. and there's, there's water planes taking off and landing. <laughs> this might not be the best location <laughs> for a podcast, yeah. but just so the listeners know what they're hearing, we're not at SeaTac right now <laughs> recording this. Um, but my, you know, my stereotype of an artist in my mind is someone who's very reclusive and solitary. Their existence is is very, um, uh, you know, they're alone a lot and they're not in the community. And what you've just described to me, you know, that trajectory since 2017, when you decided to start painting is that you are, you're in the community and you're not just, I mean, you're doing the interactive art, you're doing art therapy and it's a, and it's a very, um, broad outreach to connect with people and and get them to connect with art in general and also yes. of course your art and but. i could tell you why um i am not creating just a painting that you want to hang in your living room that's not what i'm doing i, I do that you could do that with it if you want to but 
that's not my goal. I'm not this this machine who would just sit in the room just to paint a painting that would hang in a living room. I wanted to do more with my art. I wanted I I enjoy that response from people. I enjoy engaging with them. I enjoy pulling them in to look at art and discuss local politics. Um, you know, taking them somewhere else in their brain, having them think about something else, um, challenging them, challenging their views, teaching them how they can use it. You know, instead of, I don't know, if you're angry and instead of breaking something, you could actually paint. You could just take a lot of paint and just slap it on this canvas and that would feel good, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, there are, and there's nothing wrong with it, obviously. There is different kinds of people. There's different kind of artists and there's artists that just want to sit in their room, focus on this one painting and do it to the best ability, you know, however. But for me, the creative process is a dialogue between me and my audience. And if I can't have that, then I can't be creative. Well, speaking of a dialogue with your audience, between you and your audience, um, I started following you on Instagram and um, I get these no these notif notifications about your Instagram live feeds now. And um, they're wonderful, by the way, because I, I was, I was, um, it was like nine or 10 o'clock at night a week or two ago. And I get this, this uh, notification and I turn it on and there you are. Um, or your hand is anyway, and you, you can see you working. Yeah. I mean, there's the canvas, there's the paint, your brush, your hand, and there's this, I think there's music in the background. Always. It's a party. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a party. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. this is so cool to actually see, see this being made in the moment yeah. and in that type of connection with your audience um, or with your you know, I don't know if you call them your audience, but you know, the, your, your fans, followers, your followers, viewers, your, collectors. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, very impressive, um, followers too. I mean, eight, 18,000 people on, on Instagram are following you. I have a lot of followers from the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. From Iraq. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And are you finding that the, the feedback that you're getting from the Middle East, if your followers in the Middle East is mostly still positive, even it's though, a mix. yeah, I think it was, it's a mix. There are in the beginning, there was a lot of like backlash right? Uh, about why do you paint sexuality? Why are you, why can't you just paint at like, they start to kind of suggest what I should be painting. And I kept on telling them, I don't care what you think. <laughs> I do what I want. <laughs> I don't care what you think. And I kept on telling them that. And I'm like, and then, you know, at one point I, I wrote a post, I explained that, you know, this is art, pure art. This has nothing to do with religion, uh, customs or anything. This is, it's a pure form of art. It is free from any judgment, from any societal restrictions. And if you are looking for that, then you're more than welcome to unfollow me because this is not a place that we're not going to sit here and talk about religion and our Middle Eastern, you know, culture and all, all these, we're not doing that. So I had to kind of make that clear to them several times. And there's a really healthy dose of positive feedback from the Iraqi community that I was quite taken by it, to be honest with you. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And push forward, 
do what you want, do what you love. We love your work. We're here. Let's see more of your work. And they just love it. And so I decided to focus on those people and just kind of let people be. If someone has a negative thing they want to say, then it doesn't really phase me. It, I, it, doesn't, it used to bother me a while ago, I would say a few months ago, but then I just kind of got over it quickly. And I'm just like, you know, everybody's going to view things from their own perception, from their own upbringing and environment and background. And I just can't blame them because this is, they're in a different region of the world. So I, I get it. And I'm just like, you, you don't like it, unfollow. Or you could stay and watch me paint. <laughs> well, and, and isn't isn't one of the goals of an artist, just generally, to, and I think I, I mentioned this at the beginning, but, you know, it, it's not necessarily to create something that, you know, the person looking at the painting said, this is good or this is bad. Mm -hmm. That it's, that there's, what you're trying to do is evoke some some type of emotion, even if it's anger. Mm -hmm. Haven't you succeeded in some way? If I have, I have. And I think I succeeded not because I am painting with the goal to, to get a response, right? but because I am painting from my own response to some emotional experience I have. And so because it's genuine and it's true and it's coming from a real place, it, people can't help but see it. It's not staged. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I can't stage that. I wake up. This is me. This is what I do. That's how I think. That's it. You know, this is like authentically. I live authentically. So everything I paint, everything I do is comes from a very pure, genuine place. Um, I, I can't necessarily, I mean, I do like the theme of the paintings that I just did about the amorousness of the female figure. Uh, the motherly figure or Atari paints, you know, generally I have a theme, for example, for a show. But when I paint each painting, each painting takes, comes from an emotional experience I had and I reflect back on it. Do you find that when you're living authentically and you're working authentically without a lot of goals in mind, but you just, you know, you want to do what you love that you find that the business aspect of painting kind of comes naturally, or do you still have to put effort into the business part of it? Like um, selling your work so that you can, you know, continue to paint and, you know, earn There's a living. There's definitely a business aspect of it. I launched my online store where people can go and purchase prints, high quality prints um, on phone covers or tote bags or canvas prints. Um, I work with collectors sometimes who want to um, buy a certain piece. So there's definitely a business aspect to it, but you have to keep in mind, I've been doing this professionally for what, a year and a half only. So I'm still in the, I would say, emerging artist stage. Um, and I do know that these things take time. So it will take some time for me to get to that nice financial situation with my art. Now I have some goals, some I share and some I don't necessarily like to share. Um, but, um, you, you, I don't create, you know, I don't create art with the mentality of, I want to sell it. I care about creating art that is genuine, that is true, that is really saying what I want to say. I'm just really telling a story all the time.
And I'm not so much immersed in the business aspect. Maybe I should be. <laughs> Maybe I should. But I think like, you know, networking, reaching out to galleries, updating my website, um, keeping in touch with collectors and things. I think I do that already. Um, do you find that when you're doing interactive art and you're, you know, art therapy, um, you're talking art therapy with community members, do you find that that the business part of your professional life um, comes more naturally because you just you get more exposure that way, even though you're not intentionally. It sounds like you're not intentionally um, doing community work because you want to make more money. You know, that's that's really in your heart what you want to do because you think it's the right thing. But do you find that when you're doing the right thing for you authentically, mm -hmm. that that you end up just being more financially successful. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. Yes. Um, I heard this thing the other day. The universe is willing to play with you if you are willing to play with it. And I think it's true. So I think if you are open to receiving, and I think if you are genuine and honest and just have a good, pure heart and you're working, you're really putting like, it's, it's energy, right? I mean, Energy in, energy out. So I'm not cutting any corners here. Like I said, I have arm pain. <laughs> so I, I am working hard and I, I do try to do that and network. And I think, yes, um, this outreach helps as an artist. I think trying to get your work out as much as possible is crucial. People knowing you in your area is crucial. When I receive an email from a fellow artist who's way more established than me saying, hey, Hiba, I was in an Uber today and the Uber driver pulled your account and showed me your work. People really know you in Seattle. When I hear stories like that, I get like goosebumps. Like that's so rewarding. It's so rewarding. It, you can't put money on that. And so, you know, me being a Seattle-based artist is something I'm actually very proud of. Um, I grew to love Seattle. I didn't really like it in the beginning because of the clouds. <laughs> I, I really love the sun, but I grew to love Seattle. I grew to love the people in Seattle. I grew to love all the streets and the little areas and the summers here. And I attribute a lot of my art to Seattle. And it, I feel like it brought it out of me. There's something about the culture here. I can't quite put my hand on it, but it's very rewarding for an artist. There's that audience who's very educated, open-minded, receptive. Yeah, and that's just, it nurtures your soul. I noticed that about your crowd last night. Yeah. I mean, everybody I talked to, fascinating people, um, smart. They, I, I mean, they appreciate art. And, and I come from central Washington, mm -hmm. where I think it's probably a lot more challenging for artists to find an audience and, and, and probably more challenging to be inspired because, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have people seeking out artwork there very often. And maybe I'm just not looking in the right places over there. Um, do you have advice for listeners who don't live in a city like Seattle, but they, they want to create um, and they want to get their work out there and, and be seen by people who appreciate art? Um, what should they be doing or focusing on? Yeah, there's 
callforartists.com, I think, or something like that. Like you can find, you can Google, do a simple Google search about Call for Art. And there are so many galleries that put out national art calls and you can submit your work and ship it to these galleries. And that way you get exposed. You get exposure that way. Um, if you're not able to physically attend the opening receptions of one of the, I mean, ideally, let's say you apply to a bunch of um, call to artists and you submit your work and it gets in and they tell you, hey, we have an opening reception on so-and-so date. Try to go. Go stand by your work. Have a smile on your face. Talk to people about your art. Explain or don't talk about your art. Just say, I'm the artist and talk about something else, you know, but just try to be there because I think that's very important. I think it's very important that people can know you as a person and have your art there, talk to you about your life and your art. And that is a much better connection than just seeing a painting on the wall that we don't know. It's more, this is more personal and this is more impersonal. So if they are able to do that, that would be great. Locally, they can show their work in local colleges, community centers, try to, I, I'm not really sure how remote some of these areas are, but it, it all depends. But I think generally speaking, everywhere in the U.S., I think there's, in every city, there's a room for art and artists to show their work. What's next for you? Or do you have a plan? Uh, I mean, my... Ultimately, my plan is always to become a better artist. That's always something. Um, in the immediate future, I have another show in May, the interactive art show with the Office of Arts and Culture. Uh, but other than that, just paint, 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 apply to more shows, have another show. And where can they find your work in May? A-N-T, Art Not Terminal Gallery. It will be the first Saturday of that month. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so the theme of the interactive art event will be art and mental health awareness. Yeah. So you can come and paint, basically. Hiba, uh, last night when I was at your show, we had the opportunity to talk about um, a project that you are involved in with a professor of photography out of New York. Uh, is it New York University? Yeah, NYU. NYU? Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so, yeah, Wafa Bilal is a fellow artist and a friend of mine. Um, he's an Iraqi American artist, uh, former professor at the School of Art, of the Art Institute of Chicago, and currently an associate professor at the Tisk School of the Arts at New York University. Um, he's best known for his work, Domestic Tension. Um, it was a performance piece in which he lived in a gallery for a month and was shot by paintballs uh, remotely by internet users watching from a webcam and for his book, Shoot an Iraqi, Art, Life, and Resistance uh, Under the Gun. Um, based on that performance, uh, which details the hers of living in a conflict zone and growing up under Saddam Hussein's regime. So we kind of speak the same language. <laughs> Um, we come from slightly different generations. Um, mine is more, you know, the Gulf War and his probably a little bit before and after. But we're both Iraqi American artists telling the story of our heritage, of the pains that we went through. We're storytellers. And he's a conceptual artist. 
um, more than me as a painter. And uh, as I explained earlier, I have a science background, <laughs> studied the heavy sciences. And so I was approached by him um, to collaborate working on a project that would preserve culture. So as you know, ISIS had destroyed um, the winged bull, Lamassu, and the winged lion in Mosul. And as Iraqis, we were all very triggered by that because that's our heritage. This area is the cradle of civilization. These are historical monuments that got blown up. And so his attempt, um, he wants to store the data on how to recreate these sculptures in a timeless manner. And so we dabbled into data storage in the DNA of plants. And my piece was, I mean, that was his concept. It's his creation about how to store the data. So we got the scans. He got he got the scans from the Metropolitan Museum of Art for the winged bull of Lamassu and the winged lion. And these are um, laser scans. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. So, and then we have another person collaborating with us who's a programmer, and he's going to t he he's going to take this data put it into Morse code. And then my piece was to figure out how to get Morse code inserted with synthetic DNA into the DNA of plants. And we chose wheat because it's it was first found in, in the region of the Fertile Crescent in Iraq, essentially. And so my piece was the science part. That was my contribution to the project, which is to kind of... Um, suggest, uh, you know, write uh, an experiment, how to do the experiment of taking Morse code and how to, you know, take that and put it into the DNA of plants. Fascinating. Yeah. It took a little bit of trial and error and a lot of research, dry research on my part. Yeah. And so um, that was my contribution, the basically how to insert this information into the DNA of plants and essentially have it in the seed form where you can just purchase it from anywhere and plant it. And you'll have this little tree that actually has data. This is the future of data storage because eventually we're going to run out of space to store data. So the future of data storage is storing it in the DNA of plants. People are already doing it with tobacco, tobacco plants. They already did it. Um, it's also building on, um, there's a professor at Harvard, uh, I think his name is Church. He, he already suggested that and he wrote a book called Regenesis about synthetic biology and synthetic DNA and data storage. And he stored a bunch of books and things like that into plants. So people had already started doing it. Wow. Yeah. So um, we're at the, this we're trying to preserve culture. This is what we're trying to do. So we're trying really hard to preserve our culture. And Imagine the future. You could have seeds that have the information on how to rebuild the lamassu. Oh my goodness! <laughs> the, the the bold, the winged bull, and the and the winged lion. You know, in Mosul and any other things. And so, um, right now we're at the stage of finding someone else to collaborate with us, a lab or a university that would actually make it come to fruition. So we have the person who would do the data programming, who would convert the scans into Morse code. And then I would take those, um, I mean, we would take these and then we'd combine them 
with the nucleotides, you know, like let's say zero zero would translate to um, guanine, you know, zero one to cytosine. These are nucleot the four nucleotides of DNA. And so, um, you know, you could do also synthetic DNA and get it inserted in there. Um, and then there is a way to preserve it with controlled temperature that it doesn't deteriorate over time. So there's all these benefits to it, you know. And uh, yeah, so we're right now, we're all set to go, waiting for one more person to, coll to collaborate with us um, to actually make it come to fruition. Amazing. Yeah, we have the scans from the Met, so everything is set and ready to go. And so if, if, if listeners want to learn more about that project, is there a website they can go to or is it is that yet to come? That's yet to come okay. because we are searching for the last um, collaborator, which would be a university or a lab or, um, you know, like a science biomedical lab that can um, make it come to fruition. So I think once we get to that stage, then we will have a place where you can maybe just get the seeds yourself. And I'm sure once yeah. once this happens and you find that last uh, collaborator, you'll post this on social media so your followers there can... There is a possibility yeah. of actually rebuilding it back in Iraq as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it is actually. Well, so you got your, your show in May coming yeah. up after this current one. Yeah. And then you also have this amazing science, uh, you know... Um, and that's where my science degrees came in. Yeah. It was art and science merged together. You know, that that's art is not restricted to just painting. Rebuilding There's ancient societies. Preserving and, our culture. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that is so, so cool. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you. All right. And where can listeners find you on social media? At Hiba J Art Studio, H-I-B-A-J-A-R-T Studio. Um, and that's Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, yeah, pretty much. Great. How do you feel? Great. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for, for talking to us today. Thank you. All right. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.